This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you. I'm Deb Eighty. for those that don't know, know me, but I think a lot of you do know me. We're going to talk about bones and calcium and phosphorus metabolism post-transplant. And if, Bill Peters, if you're here, this is for you because you've asked me at least two or three times about this. And we've got a few other requests for it as well. So uh, here we go on what we know about calcium, phosphorus, and bone metabolism post-transplantation. Disclosures, I'd love to have some. Feel free. But I have no disclosures pertinent to this presentation or otherwise. And I will talk about off-label use of medications. So what are the issues? There's several fold. One, we're worried about increased fracture risk in our transplant patients. We all know that they have an increased fracture risk, and, and it's a problem. We don't know what to do about osteopenia and osteoporosis. Should we be doing more, more bone scans? What about the PTH? What's the target level of PTH? Should we be using Sensipar more, less? Uh, are bisphosphonates off the menu? That's probably the most common question I get from um, people that call me and go, can we use them, can we not use them? How worrisome is the higher low calcium? What about the phosphorus? Are there other assays that would be more helpful? Can we blame all this on steroids? Because the first thing everybody wants to do is stop the steroids, and I say, don't do that. Um, What should I tell the patient? So that's kind of the conundrum that we're faced with. So this, I don't want you to read this. This is the KDECO guidelines. There's, uh, I think, 14 guidelines in here. And if you know anything about the KDECO guidelines, there's recommendations and their suggestions, and it's based on high, moderate, low, or very low evidence. To look at this, let's see if I can do this. There's one recommendation that's actually a recommendation and not just a suggestion, and that happens to be in the first few weeks after transplant that we should be monitoring the calcium and phosphorus levels. We do that. We know that. So that's not a problem. Everything else up here are suggestions that range from mostly moderate to very low evidence. So most of it's opinion. So no wonder we have no clue what to do because nobody knows what to do about this. So this is a Canadian study uh, out of Ontario where they looked at 4,800 transplant recipients and compared it to the 18 million population of Ontario and looked at the fracture risk. What I want to show you, does this work? Here's the transplant recipient fracture rate. These are patients that have had previous fractures, so therefore at already risk, not transplant recipients, just general population, who have had multiple other fractures, so they're at higher fracture risk rate. This is the general population. So clearly transplant patients are at increased risk of fractures. We knew that. So who out of the uh, transplant population are at increased risk? Well, if you look at this data out of Naylor, this is a recent study, it's those over 50 especially women over 50, who probably have compounded uh, factors such as menopause contributing to their increased fracture risk. But men over 50 also have an increased uh, risk of fracture. So what is the prevalence of uh, post-transplant fractures? This is one of the few long-term studies that looked at patients that are 10 years or greater out from transplant, and they looked at two things. One, they did serial studies of the lumbar spine and looked at what their fracture rate was, and they also looked at the medical records to assess what the uh, clinical incidence was of peripheral fractures. So 
on the lumbar spine x-rays, what they found is 61.1% of people had evidence of a vertebral fracture, but most of them were asymptomatic. This was not based on any kind of symptoms at all. This was just, let's scan everybody and see what we find. For the peripheral fractures, they had to go through the medical records and see if there was any complaints or reports of um, peripheral fractures. And because they have more of a socialized medicine, unlike us, um, they'll carry everywhere is helping. Um, they found that in the medical records, only 16.5% of people had peripheral fractures, which is a little bit different than some of the other data that we're going to see. So if you look at this study from Alaskova, who this is unpublished data, or it's in press. It's not quite made the print yet. Um, out of the ANS data um, database out of Australia and New Zealand, they looked at what is a fracture location, and most fractures are in the feet, so the lower extremity fractures with some vertebral fractures. But again, these are what they found by chart review and medical record review, not by assessment of radiologic studies. So again, uh, a recent study looked at where are the most prevalent fractures. Again, lower extremity. So I think we got this, lower extremity fractures. So what do we know about bone mineral um, density and physiology? One of the problems is that they come to us with a high risk of fracture rate because they come with meta uh, metabolic bone disease and um, impaired bone mineral density. Calcium phosphorus is off. Then they come to us, and we transplant them. We, one, we put them on calcineurin inhibitors. Almost everybody, not quite everybody, but most people are on calcineurin inhibitors, which also affects their vitamin D receptor, their vitamin D resistance, uh, increases calcium excretion. Then we... Most people are on steroids, not all, but most people are on steroids, and that increases osteoclast um, action, and that contributes to bone resorption. Then we tell them, don't go in the sun. If you come in looking tan, we're going to be yelling at you. Wear sunscreen. Allison was just talking about sunscreen. So wear sunscreen. Um, we don't want to see them coming in with sun exposure. Uh, inadequate dairy in dietary intake of calcium. Depending on where you're transplanted and what your program policies are, some programs are really adamant about not taking your Cellcept with any kind of dairy product at all, even milk in your coffee. And so people sometimes avoid, excessively avoid calcium intake. Um, ethnicity has an impact. Uh, female sex, you can't control your sex, usually. Um, transplantation in winter seasons, I don't think that's pertinent to us. And then increase in FGF 23. So there's definite impacts from both pre-transplant factors and post-transplant factors on the increased risk of bone loss. So this study out of Japan looked at what is the natural history. They did nothing to intervene. They just went ahead and monitored these patients for a year and looked at what, what their characteristics were. And most of these people have been on dialysis for about four and a, uh, three and a half years, uh, mostly in their 50s, kind of a typical population. And they looked at what happened to their calcium over time, um, what happened to their phosphorus, and as we see it, plummets after transplant, down usually around into the low ones to low, um, almost up to two, and then stabilizes. They looked at what happened um, with their GFR, their FGF23, their PTH levels, which did come down, and their vitamin D levels, which did come up. So this is natural history with no intervention. Then there was a study by Wolf and colleagues that looked at 21 centers, about, I think it was about 400 patients, and it has a very similar characteristic. And this was all centers, do whatever you want, but this is the parameters, um, again, of their calcium, their phosphorus, and their PTH over time. So you can see that the PTH sort of normalizes. 
So then this paper out of Anne's data, which is Australia and New Zealand, wanted to look at what are the predictors of fracture risk post-transplantation. So they looked at bone mineral density and um, not really reaching statistical significance here, almost, depends what you want to call. Femoral neck fractures, sort of decreased bone density, increased um, risk of fracture. Or phosphorus, which was probably the most striking and surprising aspect of the study is that a low fat, uh, phosphorus was predictive of an increased fracture risk. And maybe we're not being aggressive enough about phosphorus replacement. So association of low phosphorus levels and increased fracture risk, what they found is that the femoral neck T-score, bone mineral density, um, showed a one point, almost 1.6 increased risk, but again, did not reach statistical significance. But a low phosphorus, 2.6-fold increased risk of fracture with a low phosphorus, uh, that did reach statistical significance. So again, makes you wonder if maybe we're not doing enough to uh, control phosphorus in our transplant recipients. What are the factors associated with post-transplant bone loss and fracture? Duration of dialysis. We'll do our best to get them transplanted. We're limited by the available kidneys. Living donors, another plug for living donors. Let's get them transplanted sooner. Cumulative dose of steroids. Those of you that have been around for a while, um, I still remember when I was much younger, and we were using a lot more steroids. We saw a lot more um, fracture, a lot more um, avascular necrosis. We don't really see that very often anymore. Younger age at transplant is a benefit. Vitamin D deficiencies. And then we look at the post-transplant factors. Duration of dialysis uh, prior to transplant. Again, female gender, hypogonadism. Um, BMI. I don't think this BMI of less than 23 is meaning that athletic young person who gets transplanted. I think this is going to be more pertinent to the frail people, and diabetes is associated with increased fracture risk. So what are the types of bone disease? There's high turnover bone disease, mostly associated with an elevated PTH, which accounts for about 50% of our patients, and adynamic bone disease, which actually makes me more nervous, with decreased osteoclast and osteoblast activities, and again affecting up to about 50% of our patients. And then about 10 12% of patients have mixed disease. And this is a, a Venn diagram showing what the overlap is. There is mixed disease, but the vast majority of people have adynamic bone disease, and what contributes to that is concerning. We're going to talk a little bit about bisphosphonates, because that seems to be associated with adynamic bone disease. Um, history of parathyroidectomy, where PTH is undetectable. Uh, chronic steroid therapy, calcineurin inhibitors. mTOR inhibitors, that data is not nearly as clear. So... I'm not going to expect you to look at this because it's too tiny, but what you can see is that PTH comes up repeatedly. Is, do we want a high PTH or do we want a low PTH? Do we want a normal PTH? High PTH is being associated with mixed disease and hyperactive bone disease. But again, I worry a lot about low to low normal PTH contributing to adynamic bone disease. So what are the effects of our drugs because everybody blames the steroids. It's not always the steroids' fault. Uh, on bone metabolism, steroids inhibit bone formation. They increase bone resorption. But remember, we get them down to 5 milligrams of prednisone by 30 days, typically, if not off steroids. The risk of fracture has been decreasing over time. And most of the, if you can see on this bottom part, this is mostly affecting the lumbar spine is where steroids have their greatest impact. And given that we're doing such a quick taper these days, it's... Uh, predict to have a lot less side effect uh, on fracture risk, and that's been borne out in the literature. 
Kelsner inhibitors is very controversial. Uh, mycophenolate and mTOR inhibitors don't seem to have any real impact on bone disease. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to monitor? We can look at blood markers, calcium and phos. It's on all of our standing orders. Vitamin D, PTH, all on our standing orders. Um, who's supposed to manage this, though? They get to be a couple, three years out. Are we supposed to manage this? We need your help. We're not exactly sure who should be managing this, but I think we need to be paying attention to it. Not recommended, because it does not correlate with bone turnover, are alkaline phosphatase, uh, urinary collagen breakdown products, or TRAP5B. The radiologic studies about DEXA scans is also really interesting because the DEXA scans have good correlation with bone mineral density, but they really don't correlate in transplant patients with fracture risk. So in the KDECO guidelines, there is no recommendation. In fact, it says it is not recommended to do bone scans, but it's a little hard if patients have been having fractures not to do a bone scan and look and see what their bone mineral density is. What is coming up and is of, uh, in research right now is looking at high-resolution peripheral CTs where it can look at both cortical and trabecular bone, and that seems to be much more predictive of fracture risk. The dreaded bone biopsy, I don't know. How many of you in here were trained to do bone biopsies? Anybody? I know it came up during my fellowship, and I said, I really don't need to learn this. Um, I didn't want to learn it, but it is still supposedly the gold standard. I don't know of anybody that's doing it except for Dr. Schwartz down in the East Bay, East South Bay somewhere. So what are the opportunities for intervention? There's vitamin D, phosphorus, bisphosphonates. I spelled uh, uh, Sinecalcet wrong. Roll for teriparatite. Or what about exercise, which is what I tell all the patients. Again, no data on that. So vitamin D. Not only does it have a beneficial effect on bone, but it has a beneficial effect on the immune system. If you can see in here, it um, decreases IL-2. We don't like IL-2. Decreases proliferation of T cells. It decreases proliferation of B cells. And then it also has a positive effect on bone metabolism. And so you can see there's an intricate interplay between kidneys, parathyroid glands, red blood cells, liver, in producing vitamin D and making sure we have enough active vitamin D. So this looked at what is the correlation between vitamin D and um, GFR. And as vitamin D increases, this is deficient, insufficient, or sufficient. And there's a correlation between vitamin D and renal function. So not only is it beneficial for the bones, but it's beneficial for kidney function as well. And this is showing the same thing. There are two studies ongoing right now that look at vitamin D supplementation. This study, I think, is out of Australia. It's a Vitali study. It's looking at very high dose, 100,000 units of vitamin D for the first couple months and then tapering down to a lower dose versus 10 to 12,000 units of vitamin D and then tapering down. And they're going to look at outcomes of fracture risk, as is this Vita-D study, another study that's uh, also registered with the NIH, looking at what is the impact of vitamin D supplementation on bone fracture. Again, nothing out there that's um, clear of what to do and how much to supplement, except that we should probably correct it. What about phosphorus? Most of our patients run phosphorus levels in the 1.6 to 2 range, which is low. Um, Low phosphorus does affect PTH and FGF23. It impairs bone mineralization and osteoblast uh, proliferation. It, uh, replacement can decrease calcium and raise FGF23 and worsen hyperparathyroidism if we over-replace, which is why I'm big on trying to supplement with diet. 
What is the recommendation? There is no data. Should we keep the phosphorus closer to 2.5? Should we let it ride if it's at 2, 1.7, 1.8? My recommendation would be to get a phosphorus level that's close to low normal at a minimum. Uh, Senecalcet and parathyroidectomy. Uh, Sensepar is not approved in the renal transplant population, though we use it a lot. Its benefit is shown in that it lowers calcium and PTH levels. There's conflicting data on bone mineral density, and there's no reported adverse effects. So it is off-label, um, but it's used very widely. What about parathyroidectomy? It's performed in about 5% of renal transplant recipients. It does decrease calcium and PTH, and it improves bone mineral density um, at the spine. What about the bisphosphonates, which is what everybody seems to ask about? They do cause overall reduction in bone resorption by decreasing osteoclast activity. There's multiple, I think there's at least 20 different studies out there that look at uh, meta-analysis or publications on bisphosphonates. Uh, One in 2005 showed there's a beneficial effect at the femoral neck and the lumbar spine, but no reduction in fracture risk. That was by an AJKD. In 2011, there's a 3% increase in bone mineral density at the femoral neck and lumbar spine. No change in vertebral fractures. 2016, another study looked at improved bone mineral density at the femoral neck and lumbar spine, but again, no decrease in fracture. And I think the bottom line is we can look at bone mineral density, but what we're seeing on DEXA scan does not correlate with the type of disease, bone disease that we see in transplant recipients. So the concern is with bisphosphonates, adynamic bone disease, and there, again, is no data for GFRs less than 30. Here's a comparison of some of the studies that have been done with the different bisphosphonates, ibidronate, palmidronate, uh, zolandronic acid, uh, and alendronate. And you can see that before treatment and after treatment, there is minimal, minimal change in bone mineral density. That's uh, bone mineral density down here. So, again, it's not really clear that there's a beneficial effect, but they do make us feel better. Um, denosumab is a f- another agent that is in clinical trials right now. It's a fully human monoclonal antibody to NF-kappa B. Uh, it decreases differentiation and activity of the osteoclasts, so it sounds promising. Reduces bone resorption and increases bone mineral density. Seems to be safe in osteoporotic women with CKD 3 to 4, so maybe it's going to be okay in transplant patients. But there is hypocalcemia noted with a decreased GFR. Again, registered with clinicaltrials.gov, more to come. Hopefully, it'd be nice to get involved in a trial like that because we've got plenty of patients. Teriparatide, it's a recombinant PTH. There's very few reports of its use in renal transplant patients. I found one case report out of Boston and two small case series. It's used in patients with pre-transplant parathyroidectomy who have profoundly low or undetectable PTH with refractory hypocalcemia, and its use has been predominantly in those patients with profound hypocalcemia and one patient who had delayed graft function that was thought to be as a result of uh, calcium phosphorus poor metabolism. Data is limited. Its use did decrease use of uh, IV calcium post-transplant in those studies. Uh, another name, oh, I don't even know how to say this one, odanicatim. Uh, it's a selective potent reversible inhibitor of cathepsin uh, K, inhibits bone loss in mice has completed phase one, two trials. Going into phase three, there's no data on it for use in transplant recipients, but again, this might be something that we could uh, get in on. What about exercise? 
There's absolutely no data in the literature regarding fracture risk in renal transplant recipients in exercise. There's a lot of data that exercise decreases fracture risk in osteoporotic women. It improved, improved core strength will decrease fall risk, and there are other health benefits of exercise. So there can't be anything wrong with doing exercise, and it can only improve bone strength and decrease um, fracture risk. But again, there's no clinical trials or no um, studies published about this. So where does that leave us? We are worried about the increased risk of fractures in our transplant patients, as we should be. We don't know what to do about osteopenia and osteoporosis. We know that we can probably improve bone mineral density. We think that probably makes a difference and makes us feel better, but it does not seem to translate into decreased fracture risk, which is disconcerting. Should we be doing more, more bone scans? Again, they make us feel better, but bone scans don't seem to correlate with fracture risk. What about the PTH? I think this is a good question. What is the target PTH? There's no data. Again, this is my opinion. Keep it at the upper limit of normal or up to two times the upper limit of normal. Um, I don't aim with treatment with um, Sensapar to keep it at uh, subnormal or subupper limit normal ranges because I do worry about adynamic bone disease. Should we be using Sensapar more, less? Appears to be safe. In my opinion, we can use it but we should target to appropriate PTH level, which, again, I think is upper limit of normal to two times the upper limit of normal. Are bisphosphonates off the menu? No. Duration is um, not clear. One study looked at using bisphosphonates for a year that kept bone mineral density better in the bisphosphonate group than it did in the control group, but, again, it did not correlate to change in fracture risk. But you need longer time, and those studies get expensive when you're trying to do longer-time studies. How worrisome is the higher low calcium? Look at the whole picture. Should we pay more attention to the phosphorus? After doing literature review, I think absolutely we need to be more aggressive in phosphorus replacement, especially early on. Aim to keep the phosphorus in the normal range. Where we have the biggest problem is still in our court because it's in the first couple months, actually the first month after transplant, where their phosphorus levels are so low, and we should aim to keep the phosphorus in the normal range and maybe help decreased um, exacerbation of hyperparathyroidism. Are there other assays that are more helpful? I think we should be paying more attention to vitamin D assays. We order them. I don't always see them. They're on our standing order lab sheets, but uh, for some reason they don't always pop up on our um, results sheets. So I think we need to be paying more attention to that. And supplement is appropriate. It's a pretty inexpensive and easy therapy. Can we blame all this on steroids? No, I'm not taking responsibility. Steroids are not the blame of all the evil problems in the world. Um, we do try and get them down early, but you know, if somebody has rejection episode, they do get recycled on steroids. They'll get high-dose steroids and then a quick taper. It's that high-dose steroids that seem to be a problem, not the five milligrams a day that we use in people for maintenance therapy. What should I tell the patient? We'll aim to keep the PTH within target range, replace the vitamin D, and in my opinion, Engage in regular exercise. And I thank you for your time. Any questions that I probably can't answer? <laughs> Three and below. And uh, is there any correlation to sclerostin with uh, 
Steroid, especially steroids, supposed to induce sclerostin and, and osteocytes and osteoblasts. I've seen papers on it. We don't routinely measure it. You know, all we're measuring is vitamin D, PTH, calcium, and phosphorus. I think there's a lot of opportunity for better trials on what's a better measurement. The question is, what is the target? The, I mean, the ultimate target is fracture risk. Um, but that can take, you know, typically it takes about three years to see fractures, and in that one study it was up to 10 years. So we don't know. We don't know. Sure. Um, do you know what assay do you use for 25-hydroxyvitamin D at UCSF, and how do you define the vitamin D deficiency? Things are changing. You know, the numbers have been, are, are changing, at least in the general nephrology literature. Uh, when do you intervene for the treatment? That's my question one. And if you want to answer that first before I go to my second so question. So let me answer the first part. Because our patients come from so many different places, about a third to 40% of our patients are Kaiser, so those patients all get their vitamin D levels at Kaiser. And then the rest of our patients, rarely is it actually done at UCSF. It's mostly done at either Quest or LabCorp, and I don't know what their assay is. So I can't answer what their specific assay is, other than we're just doing 25 vitamin D. I think Quest is HPLC, um, but if you go to different parts of the country, there are different assays, and I don't know how to correlate, with, I mean, one assay with another. Yeah. We used to treat anything less than 30 with vitamin D. We used to blast them with vitamin D. I personally, you know, have started change that practice, and now it's less than 20, because it's very rare to keep them 30 or above, and we may be harming those patients more than helping them. Right, because there is risk of vascular calcification if you're over-treating, and there's other risks associated with hypervitaminosis D, and it's much more difficult to clear that. So I'd rather go slow. I get nervous when I see people come in, and they're on the ergocalciferol, and they're still on 50,000 once a week for a prolonged period of time, um, because that's not usually something we've prescribed. But it does make me nervous. Yeah, you you may not see hypercalcemia, but you may have hypercalciuria, which you don't measure, and you may produce stones and all that, and I, where I practiced a stone belt, and you don't want to create more problems than help them. My second question is, in one of your slides, you mentioned hypogonadism is one of the risk factors for, for mm-hmm. the post-transplant, in the post-transplant state. Yes. It's a very interesting question. So how do you deal with that? Do you treat those patients keeping uh, post-transplant prostate cancer in mind? Um, fortunately, we don't see a whole lot of post-transplant prostate cancer. Uh, we are not measuring testosterone or looking for um, gonadal hormones, so we sort of defer that to the primary care physician. We have enough on our plate that it's not something that we are going to take on outside of a study, but it's a good question. At what point should, especially men, what, when should they have hormone replacement? Because there's a lot of people out there that you know have especially if you watch the commercials, low T, they have low testosterone levels. And usually what happens is somebody's checked it on the outside, then they call us and ask us if they can replace it, which you know, may help anemia, may help bone health as well. So I don't think there's anything against using it if there's documentation that they actually have low testosterone, but we're not routinely monitoring. One of the practical problems of treating hypophosphatemia is most preparations cause diarrhea, it's very difficult to maintain compliance. 
Yes, and they don't like it, and it's like you know, two packets or two huge pills, you know, two, three, four times a day, whatever, depending how phosphorus deficient they are. So the NPs that are here that work with me know that I'm always pushing five servings of high phosphorus foods a day. I'm talking about their nuts, beans, cheese, trying to get them to do as much as they can dietarily. If you remember those graphs, within about three weeks, they usually come up on their own. So usually that's not falling into um, outside of our realm. The problem is if it says if they have persistent hypophosphatemia, I suspect that they have something else going on, and that's when we should be paying more attention to the PTH and seeing what else is going on because I think we're missing things. Great. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.